Thank you, Rob. And thanks again also to the worship team. It's good to see uh, Katie. Where did she run off to? I guess she, she ran off to the children. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's a good excuse. <laughs> so it's good to see Katie Applin again back up here. And, uh, and before Andrew swept her away to Spokane, Washington. So. <laughs> Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we do give thanks to the Lord, to you for your unfailing love that breaks down all barriers, that breaks apart, that shatters anything that, that gets, in your way, gets in our way of loving you, all the idols that, that um, we, we keep close to our, our homes and close to ourselves, that we have trouble giving up, that we have trouble loosening our fingers around. Father, we thank you for your, your love that's never, ever ending, that's steadfast, that's new every morning, that uh, what has been done and what has happened in the past is there, but uh, your mercies are new every single day, and we get to start fresh every day. Father, we thank you for sending your word to us in the scriptures. We thank you for sending the living word to us to save us. And uh, Father, we just ask this morning that you receive our, uh, our worship and our bodies ourselves as the ultimate in, in worship, as we lay ourselves on the altar and surrender to you. And uh, that we give you permission to invade our lives and to change us, as the song says. That we want to hold on to what we have thought we were and what we think we should be. But, but you desire to move us in a different direction. You desire, you desire to redeem us, change us, and, uh, and, and use us in the world. And we are thankful for that privilege. We are also thankful for that responsibility. So, Father, we look into your word this morning. We do ask that your, your spirit move among us and especially in the interior parts of our, of our being to change us and renovate us, revive us, and renew us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are uh, uh, continuing on sort of in our, sub, our series of Life in the Spirit and our sub-series, uh, Hearing God for Normal People. And uh, I've titled this morning's message as, as God's Favorite uh, Dwelling. And we'll look at that a little bit later, uh, where His Favorite Dwelling Place is. And, uh, but before we do, I, I, did, um, I brought a music video. I was, uh, Oscar bought some really beautiful ones. This one is not one of those beautiful ones. Uh, but <laughs> it's not even Christian, but it speaks biblical truth. Uh, it's from a band uh, from Lubbock, Texas called the Flatlanders. And if you've ever been to Lubbock, Texas, you know why they are called the Flatlanders. Uh, but if you like twangy country music, you will love this. So uh, let's just listen to this and... Uh, Got a mind of its own Takes me out of walking When I'd rather stay at home Takes me out to parties When I'd rather be alone Lord, my mind's got a mind of its own I've been doing things I thought I'd never do I've been getting into trouble Without ever meaning to I know sooner settle down Than I'm right back up again I feel just like a leaf out in the wind Cause my mind's got a mind of its own Takes me out of walking when I'd rather stay at home Takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone Lord, my mind's got a mind of its own I seem to forget half the things I start I try to build a house and then I tear the place apart 
I freeze myself in fire and I burn myself on ice. I can't count to one without thinking twice. My mind has got a mind of its own. Takes me out of walking when I'd rather stay at home. Takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone. Oh, my mind's got a mind of its own. Tell myself to do the things I should And then I get to thinking that them things ain't any good I tell myself the truth but I know I'm lying like a snake You can't walk on water at the bottom of the lake My mind's got a mind of its own Takes me out walking when I'd rather stay at home Takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone Lord, my mind's got a mind of its own Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Maybe that explains my personality to you guys. Something like that. Uh, this is what I grew up with. That, that song is about 30 years old, I think, but it's a great song. And it's not a Christian song, but boy, does it speak biblical truth. Uh, my mind's got a mind of its own. I end up doing the things I don't want to do. Uh, basically, what he's taking is Romans chapter 7. Oh, didn't, didn't put it up there, I guess. Uh, Romans chapter 7 that says... Um, the things that I do, I don't, I, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I hate doing, I, I end, up, end up doing even though I hate doing it. And I thought I had that verse up there. Maybe it's, yeah, nope, I guess I didn't. Nope, I guess I didn't. But you get the idea. Romans 7, uh, Paul talks about how we want to do these things and we don't do them, and we end up doing the things we really hate doing, and we're just uh, at a loss because our mind has a mind of its own. Uh, I think if we heard people singing that all the time in the grocery stores and stuff, it, our world would be a better place. We would kind of understand each other a little bit better, I think, uh, because I'm, I'm really good at that. Uh, uh, my mind has just got a mind of its own. I end up doing things. And the reason we do this is because we have broken souls. Paul goes on to say that, that uh, we are damaged people. We are damaged by something. There's something inside of us that ends up doing these things, Paul says. It's something he calls the sinful nature that does them, he goes, I don't want to do them, I do them, but it happens and it's my nature to do them. My mind has a mind of its own. But he goes on to say in Romans 12, further on down in the book, he says, but don't be conformed to this world, but he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, there is hope here. There is possibilities here. Uh, in first, he tells the Corinthians that, that you have the mind of Christ. Uh, Galatians, he talks about the fruit. And here in Colossians, he uses the imagery of putting on clothes, of taking off the old clothes and putting on new clothes and having Christ dwell inside. So if there is hope. We can be changed. We can be transformed uh, if we know what we're doing, if we can cooperate with what God is doing. And I think what he's saying in this chapter of Colossians, that last week on my, on my retreat, I spent a lot of time in Mark and Colossians. And, and this chapter just really spoke to me again. Uh, over the last week and what he is saying here basically is that our lives are this beautiful journey of increasing intimacy with God that we enter this life with Christ 
in an increasing intimacy with God. We are on this constant conversation of living with and listening to God. And I believe God talks to us, God speaks to just normal people, not just the heroes. That listening and living with God is not just for spiritual heroes who we read about in books and we have these great, great testimonies, but it's this ongoing relationship. But we have to tend to our souls. And that's what I think is really difficult because our lives are this beautiful, beautiful journey of intimacy, but we've got to learn to tend to our soul. And what I think that, late, that in the last couple of centuries, we have kind of neglected the soul. We almost deny that it even exists. We, says, we deal with it when, okay, we want to get saved. We're out to save souls and so that they can go to heaven. But that's about it. That's about to the extent of it. That it's something immaterial that's going to spend eternity disembodied somewhere. But that's not what the gospel says. That's not what the gospel is all about, necessarily. If you grew up in the evangelical tradition, you either, you know, we have the idea that the Christian life is accumulating a lot of facts about God. Uh, a lot of facts about the Bible. A lot of memory verses of the Bible. And that's where your, that's where your, your, your emphasis is. If it's more the kind of the charismatic or Pentecostal wing of evangelicalism, it's all about the experience. You come, to, you come to church to get an experience. And that's when you know God is real. And we have forgotten this, this missing piece, in my opinion, of, of tending to our souls. Without it, our mind just is, has a mind of its own. And so we, we kind of deny it and neglect it. It's something that we attend to and, and delight in. And the heroes of the faith that we do read about without exception, their priority was tending to their own soul. The heroes that we read about, they, they have taught great wisdom, they have planted churches, they have built hospitals and schools, and done all sorts of things, but you read them and you read their biographies, and their first and foremost priority is the nurture of their own souls. That always comes first. Paul tells Ephesians, he says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're being rooted and grounded in love. Julian of Norwich from the 14th century says this, the human soul is God's most familiar home and his favorite dwelling. Isn't that beautiful? That the human soul is God's favorite dwelling. It is the most where he feels at home in us. We just have to be aware of that. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. It's this beautiful journey that we all undertake of walking and listening with God. And I'm really, really good at getting things wrong. I'm really good at, at, at messing things up. And I'm really good at, um, at my mind having a mind of its own and taking me places where I don't want to go. I'm really good at that. But through the years, I'm 64 years old, and I've gained some experience to know what the root of that is. At least I know where the root is and what I can do and deal with it. And that is, I got to play attention and nurture that soul. Dallas Willard says the soul is what integrates ourselves. It takes our, our, our thoughts and our emotions, our choices, our decisions, our bodies, our social context, and it's what integrates it everything. He says it's kind of like a computer program that runs a system. And he says the computer program can be reprogrammed. 
And I think that's what Paul is talking about in the passage that Rob read this morning in Colossians chapter 3. He is talking about reprogramming that program, that computer program, that, that thing that integrates all of, our, all of our beings. I think that's Paul's challenge to the Colossians. He's not challenging them just to change their religious beliefs a little bit. He's not challenging them to, to you know, make some twe tweaks on the points of a doctrinal statement or adjust their philosophy. He is, act he is, he is advocating a, a thorough reprogramming of our souls. That this other stuff was, was, our mind's got a mind of its own and we have been enslaved in that. But he's saying, but clothe yourself with Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ and you will be clothed with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing each other's sins and forgiving one another. It's a total reprogramming of the soul. That we pay attention to that longing and that is what is, that's what is in every human being. This desire, this longing, this thirst, this hunger to be at home, that familiarity of being home. And we dwell in God and he dwells and Christ dwells in us. And what happens, Paul says, is that the peace rules in our hearts. How many of us don't want that? For peace to start ruling in our hearts. And Paul says that is all possible. That is all possible. And the place where that happened, the supreme place of all that happening of reconciliation of healing of life and forgiveness is all possible because of the cross the cross has made it possible for a restored relationship between humans and god the cross has made it possible for a restored relationship between each other and the gospel of john uses a little bit term not different terminology than the other gospels he talks about the logos which is jesus christ was this word the word of god and the word of God in, in, uh, in the Old Testament could be the wisdom of God, the creative word of God, the Torah, all of those things. And he says this, this, uh, this word has become a person. And the other three Gospels, they like to use the word Christ or, or Messiah, but we're talking about the same idea. John talks about eternal life. The other three Gospels talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, but they're all talking about the same thing. And this idea for a Greek to read about the word, the logos, to become a person would just rattle their mind. If you were a Greek, you would see the word as this uh, intellectual, spiritual entity. And the idea that it would become a person would, would rattle your world. If you're a Jew and you're reading this, you're thinking Torah, you're thinking wisdom of God, you're thinking the creative word of God from Genesis becoming a person. That would shake their foundation. But this is what the Bible is talking about. This is true Home. This is true. This is the place where we want to belong, the true familiarity. And the thing is, we can step into that world, that reality, right now. We can step into that kingdom. We can step into that eternal life. Eternal life, when John talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about the number of years of this unceasing existence that would be, in my opinion, very almost unendurably boring and almost torturous. But when John is talking about it, Jesus says it is the life with God. It is an abundance of life that he's talking about. Matthew, Mark, and Luke call it the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we can step into that now. And the day of our death just becomes another day in our unceasing existence. We invite, he is inviting us to come into that right now the life in the ordinary world. 
One of our problems, though, in dealing with this is the idea of revival. Now, many of us have experienced mountaintop, had mountaintop experiences with God. Many of us have done that. Maybe it's the first time you, you met Jesus Christ and you had this mountaintop experience. Maybe it was a retreat. Maybe it was a college group you had in college or your youth group when everybody was on fire for the Lord or you had these experiences that were mountaintops and, and those are important. Those are critically important. And you'll hear a lot of people, a lot of Christians talking about praying, praying for revival for our country. Well, I grew up in the church and I, I became kind of, I really kind of became aware of, of Christ as my savior in uh, junior high in about, about 13 years old. And ever since then, everybody's been praying for revival, revival in our country. And I would welcome that. I would welcome that. But revival is one thing. But I would say by far the hardest part is living the Christian life in between revivals. The hardest part is living from one revival to the next. And that's where we're going to spend 99% of our time. And so that's where, we, that's where we nurture our soul. In this ordinary, mundane life that we think is just vanilla. That is just get up in the morning, go to work, feed the kids, take them to school, come home, watch TV. And that's the area where we spend 99% of our time. And what Paul is getting at in Colossians 3 and other places in the scripture, other places in his letters, is that this is where we live. This is where Christ lives. This is where we manifest our life in Christ. And I would say that it is much harder to manifest our Christ, manifest Christ, and live for Christ in the ordinary daily grind than it is for the revivals. And this is where God wants to meet us. Another saint, St. Therese of Lisieux, I don't know how to speak French, so I don't know how to pronounce that. She says this, people live their spiritual life in the mountaintops. The teacher of teachers instructs without sound of words, and just when I need them, then light, hitherto, unseen, breaks in upon me. Look at this last sentence. Now it is, as a rule, not during prayer that this happens, but is in the midst of my daily duties. That's when it seems to happen. We can, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier for me to write a sermon in the week and come and do this monologue sort of thing. And it's easier for Kendra to put, get, put together a worship set and rehearse and, give us some, and bring us with some great music. It's easier, but the hard part comes living for Christ, Monday to Saturday. That's when the hard place comes. That's when it's hard, in our daily duties. How do we do that? How do we manifest Christ? How do we live for Jesus Monday to Saturday? How do we learn to do that? How do we help each other do that? That is the question. I think that is what Paul is talking about in this, in this Colossians chapter 3, is this daily, daily life. And I say that, that if we can condition our reflexes in the mundane of recognizing Jesus in the mundane, then we are more prepared to meet him in the emergencies. That if we train our reflexes in the day-to-day -day duties of life, we are better ready to meet that cancer. We are better ready to meet that divorce or that wayward child 
or that illness or that crisis or that loss of job or whatever that may be, we're better able to meet that if we have practiced our reflexes in the mundane, in the ordinary. We are better equipped. Many of us talk about our vibrant faith of yesterday and we want to repeat that and I would welcome it. You know, I had some high mountaintop experiences, especially in my college days. Wonderful, wonderful community, wonderful fellowship. I would welcome that. I would like to repeat that. But it's much harder in between those revivals to do that. Can we hear God in the ordinary? Can we hear God in the ordinary? Paul says that Christ is all and is in all in Colossians 3. He is all and in all. And how did we miss that? I mean, I read that this week, and it just kind of hit me. and go, how did I miss that all these years? One of our problems is that we, our spiritual journey is 99% of the ordinary. And we live our lives in compartments. And uh, we only have a certain amount of time. Everybody has 24 hours. And so we try to balance our health, our church, our work, our exercise, our, our love life, our getting married, our having a family. And something has to decrease. And oftentimes that's Christ. Oftentimes that is Jesus. We don't have time for everything, so we manage all these compartments in our life, and we don't realize that we put him in the center, and we have this wellspring of flowing to these things. We put him in the center, and we have this wellspring of flowing into our health issues, into our church, into our work and exercise programs or, or love life or family or whatever, and it flows out to those things. It gives them meaning, it gives them significance, and it gives them, and we have power to do it. Jesus is not just another compartment. It is the center. And, and Oscar hit on that last week. It is the center. And it's a wellspring that flows out to all those other areas, other areas of life. In, Coloss in the last section of this paragraph that, that Rob read, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive the grievances uh, that you have one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And all over the virtues, put on love, which binds us all together in unity. And then move on to Christ. That's how we do it. That is where we get peace that will rule in our hearts. Doing this puts peace, rule in our hearts. That the God of the universe, the God of history, is also the God of the mundane. He is also the God of the ordinary. You say, how can a God be out there? We saw those pictures of the Webb telescope and God's out there. How can he, how can he be part of my little world here well because he is out there means he's also right here means he's part of the mundane he's part of the ordinary and we live that way we move beyond panentheism to sacramentality and what what do i mean by that pantheism you may have heard of pantheism says that god is everything is god the tree is God, the, the river is God, the rocks are God, the humans are God, everything is God. Panentheism says God is in everything, that there's a bit of God in, in, uh, in every tree and every rock and everything, that God is in that. But what I think Paul gets at, and the New Testament gets at that, is that everything is a sacrament. 
that God cares about the material, physical, mundane, ordinary world. He cares about it. Wendell Berry says, this is not, there, there is not sacred and secular. There is only sacred and the desecrated. And what he means by that is everything in the creation is good. It's all sacred, except it's been touched by sin. It's been touched by our damaged souls. Because our mind has a mind of its own, all these things have been touched. But that doesn't make them unsacred. It's just desecrated. But everything, the material world, is holy. And we know that by the incarnation. The most startling affirmation of the material world is this hinge on history, the incarnation of Christ. When the Greeks would hear that the, that the word was God, the word was with God and the word was God, that just would blow their mind because they're gods. They could become disguised as humans or animals or even volcanoes, but to become a person was out of the question. When the Jews read this and they see the law of, the, of Genesis becoming a person, that would just rattle their cages. They would have no idea how that would work. But John goes on to say, say that he, was, he is God. And he, he came in the flesh and he dwelt among us and he is full of grace and truth. And we beheld his glory, the one and only son of the father. He sanctified the material world. The perspective of Jesus was in the ordinary. He was born in a person, as a person, as a baby. But you know, have you ever noticed that most biographies, people start with their childhood and how they grew up? We know very little about Jesus' childhood. Why? Because it wasn't really newsworthy. It was just pretty ordinary. He grew up in an ordinary place. The only thing we know about Jesus' childhood is that, is that story in Luke chapter 2 where they were going back to Nazareth from the Passover and Jesus went missing for three days. It turns out he was still back at the temple talking with the scribes and the priests. That's the only thing we know. But you can imagine Jesus learning to, be, learning to build furniture, learning to build a house. You can imagine Jesus you know, straddling a beam on a house, eating his lunch of bread and olives. It was just pretty normal. And it was just those last three years that he came on and burst into the scene. And we see Jesus using ordinary things throughout his ministry, his teaching. His teaching dealt with, with bread. His teaching dealt with the catch of fishermen. His teaching, teaching talked about shepherds caring for sheep. Everything normal. When he talked about parables, he, talked, he used normal everyday stuff of a woman losing a coin of a shrewd businessman, of an unjust judge, of debtors, of soldiers, all ordinary things. Even the miracles. He used water, mud to heal the blind. He, he, he used fish and bread to feed thousands of people. He used the ordinary stuff. He saw the kingdom behind everything. He sees the kingdom behind all the mundane, all the ordinary. That's him. Dwelling in the ordinary. This is the starting point. This is the starting point of the importance of how we look at the ordinary and the mundane. We start with Jesus and how he dealt with it. Everything was interwoven into the kingdom as far as Jesus was concerned. 
And perhaps the greatest way he taught about the kingdom using ordinary elements are what we call the sacraments. Water, bread, and wine. That the most important way that we can experience God is through ordinary elements like baptism and communion. You get wet, you actually eat something. It can't get any more ordinary than that. And that's what he uses to open the door, to open our eyes to view the kingdom. Water, bread, and wine. Now, for two, two uh, millennia now, the church has argued over these sacraments. We have all kinds of names for it, Mass, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, Communion, whatever. We can't even agree whether to use grape juice or wine. But almost all churches do it and use it. And if for a church for, to have these things fall out of favor, we're missing some of the most important things. If we go back to just Christianity being an accumulation of, of information or maybe looking, going after, fishing for some experience, this is the way he communicates through the ordinary. Bread and wine. That's how we see the kingdom. That is the way we look at it. He is the God of small things. And so how do we learn to do this? How do we learn this attentiveness? How do we get in this process of tending to our souls so that they transform? And so our mind has the mind of Christ instead of a mind of its own. How do we do that? Let me mention two things before we get before we get into these, just a quick list of things, that suggestions that I'm going to give you, <clears throat> is what is a sacrament? Like I said, we argued over these, churches have argued over this for 2,000 years. A sacrament is simply this. It is a physical, physical manifestation, outward manifestation of an inward spiritual truth and grace. It is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. That's all it is. That's all it is. How would it look if I saw everything in this great created world as a, as a visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace? How would you raise your children differently if you thought raising children was a sacrament? How would you cook differently if you thought preparing meals was a sacrament? How would you, you wouldn't just be going to the grocery store to buy food, you would be going to buy a sacrament. How would that look if you talk, saw your work as a sacrament to God, as a sign of a spiritual truth, a spiritual grace? How would that change if we did that? The other thing I want to mention is that sometimes God is silent. I can give you all these things, and sometimes God is silent. Uh, even the heroes of the faith wrote about this. St. John of the Cross wrote a whole, whole book, and he called this the, the dark night of the soul. And we say, oh, you know, God's not with me. How many of you ever seen this sign on a, on a church signboard? If God feels far away, guess who moved? I, at first we resonate with that, but then I look at it and go, you know what, this is not helpful. This is not helpful because nobody moved. 
Sometimes God is silent. That doesn't mean he's gone or he left. Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Now, if he is silent, that doesn't mean he's left. He's still there. If he's silent, it doesn't mean that you left. Because wherever you leave to, he's going to be there. That's not how it works. Now, we can block our awareness. We can. There are things that will keep us from being aware. And I think the number one thing is fear. Any kind of preoccupation or concern that you are dealing with, I think if you could trace that tr thread all the way back, you will find fear of some kind. And that blocks us from being aware. He may be silent, but we can still be aware of his love. We can be desperate, but we can still be aware of his love. Nobody went anywhere. We can't go anywhere where he is not. And he will only speak to you where you are. In your reality. So how do we do that? First of all, we notice. We notice. We continue to notice. We, he will only be there in our reality, in our present reality. You can be concerned about the future, but, he's, but, but you're not there. You can be telling yourself these toxic stories from your past, but he's not there. He is only, he's with you right here. This is your reality, this present reality. This is the time where you, you, you sit there in your, in, your, in your present reality and you go, boy, that bacon smells really good. Thanks, God, for the bacon. Or you go, God, this, this coffee tastes so good in the morning. It's so hot. Thank you for the coffee. Or you see that expression of a person that you love and the expression of their face when you enter a room and their face lights up. That's, that's being aware of God's love. Being aware of those things. Notice those things. And that will move you into gratitude. Paul says this in Colossians 3. You move into thankfulness. You can be thankful for those things. It's this cognitive sense of his presence right there when you think. And then it leads to an invitation where we just say, be with me, Father, in this moment. Be with me, Lord Jesus, in this moment. And sometimes it comes out as a plea or a cry. Sometimes it's just with a warm cup of coffee, but sometimes it's when things, when tragedy happens. And you say, be with me in this moment. I need you in this moment. And the last thing is the prayer of examine. Evan Howard calls this God hunting. And it's a prayer that was kind of, kind of systematized by St. Ignatius de Loyola years ago. And all the Jesuits still pray this every night. I'm going to suggest that you try this at night. And all it is is a prayer of saying, Father, show me where you were this today. Let me see your goodness from this day. And then, Father, show me where I disobeyed you. Show me where I turned my back on you. The 24-7 uh, prayer movement does a great job of paraphrasing it this way. They said the prayer this way. Reflecting on the day that has passed, Lord, show me where you were at work in my life. In what ways did I experience your goodness? When did I hear you speak? 
And then the next prayer, Father God, would you remind me now of the ways in which I have sinned today in thought, in word, and in deed. And I take a moment to confess my sins before you now. And then you close the prayer, God of grace, thank you that when I was lost, you found me. And when I was ashamed, you forgave me. Nailing the accusation against me to the cross, I receive your forgiveness now. I can print this in the Connections Letter this week if you would like to have it. It's a prayer that, that's, you know, if you're thinking and contemplating, it takes maybe five minutes in the evening. But you will start to see God working in your life. You will start to see where God's forgiving you, where God spoke to you, where you listen for him. That is the beauty and the graciousness of this life with God, of listening to him. I'm going to close with a warning. If you exile God from the mundane, then you will not find him in the tragedy. Don't exile God from your ordinary life because when, it comes, when the tragedy comes, you will not be able to find him. You will not hear him. You will not know how to hear him. You will not know how to see him. The, actual, the, the, the physical world is jam-packed with spiritual grace. It is full. And your life is a sacrament to that. Your life is a sacrament, a demonstration of that spiritual truth and spiritual grace. And God's favorite dwelling place is your soul. His favorite home is in us. We just have to be aware of it. 